David, are you there? All right, welcome to uh, TK Live. This is uh, Matt Taibbi, and I am waiting for my friend and uh, and guest today, David Sirota. David, I know you're in here somewhere. Let's uh, let's invite you up to the speaker portion of the. Uh, hang on a moment. This is embarrassing. Here we go. You there, David? You gotta unmute yourself. Hello? Okay. Sorry, folks. Um... One more time. Hang on a second. Just gonna get David in here. There he is. David, you there? Gotta unmute yourself. Hey man, how you doing? All right, how's it going? All right, sorry about that. Sorry. No, it's all right. It's, uh, you know, I, I feel like I feel like I always screw up the the opening with these call-in. Yeah, the the platform's a little difficult right at the beginning, but now now we're all good. We're all good here now. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for coming by. For sure, man. It's it's good to talk to you. Uh, yeah. We're, I I I always love talking about why the normies aren't radicalized. Uh, <laughs> 
you know, I think that especially on the Democratic side, the uh, uh, the normie Dems are part of why we're here. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think we're coming at this from a slightly different point of view, but but uh, actually, more I think about it, it kind of comes back to the same thing. So maybe we should start just by sort of giving people an overview of what we're talking about, right? So um, can you just briefly summarize the piece that, that you wrote uh, yesterday or the day before, right? The the about how people need to, the, the people need to pressure the party more. Right. So, so listen, I, I think that part of the reason that we're, we're in this moment is because the, um, I think that Republican voters have been conditioned, uh, to demand things of their politicians, uh, and hold their politicians accountable. And that, um, uh, democratic voters have been conditioned to never demand anything of their voters and never hold their politicians accountable at all. Uh, and I think that, Roughly speaking, I think that's part of why we're here. And I think that 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 as it relates to what we call normies, uh, I think what I'm really talking about is that there. Listen, there are there are activists, politically engaged, political junkies on each side uh, of the political divide. Uh, but what we're talking about is the sort of broad uh, normie voter, the rank and file voter who's not a political junkie. Not and I think I think as it relates to the to the Democrats, I think yeah. that they have not that the the average rank and file democrat has been taught for many years that um questioning their party leaders um challenging their party leaders uh, asking them to do anything uh you know even politely is somehow apostasy unacceptable they've been taught to believe that even when democrats are in power they have no power so so i think that ultimately uh that is part of the reason why we're here and i also think that Perhaps when you, you know, the frame of this conversation is the end of normie politics is that perhaps all of these rulings that are coming down from the Supreme Court, which are essentially trying to repeal the 20th century. I think those those rulings, if there are, is a silver lining from my own viewpoint and political perspective. I think the silver lining is, is that maybe more uh, so-called normie Democrats realize that, you know, they should be asking more of their politicians uh, and they shouldn't just accept that when, you know, uh, 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 the overturning of Roe comes down, that Nancy Pelosi should just send out a fundraising email saying, hey, uh, help us win the next election. It's like, dude, you're the Speaker of the House right now. How stupid do you think we are? I mean, for a long time, I think the Democratic normie voter has been uh, pretty compliant, pretty, you know, that fundraising email would go out and people respond to it. But I think now we're seeing a kind of mainstreaming of like people saying, lots and lots of people saying, this is bullshit. This This is a game. You're treating it like a game you guys run the government and you're refusing to do anything. And and frankly, I, I think that uh, that portends a more um, tumultuous politics, uh, a, a more. But but I think it's long, long, long overdue. So, OK, can, can we back up? Because I think there's another sort of related issue, which is that the Democratic Party for a while now, like you go back to the 90s, 80s and 90s and remember when primary colors came out and mm-hmm. everybody was lionizing the new, new new Democrats for being so in tune with like the middle, middle American <laughs> voter, right? Like that, that was the legend of the party, right? If you remember. Right. Right. So now it's the complete opposite. Now they, they have no idea how to talk to 
anybody. And this is this phenomenon I've been watching, like just as a campaign re- reporter for for a long time now. They have no ability to communicate with the ordinary, not extremely online voter uh, who doesn't live in Washington or LA or or New York. And as a result of that, I, I feel like they 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 lose elections, right? So, so in other words, they, 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 they go into battle against people like Donald Trump and they're somehow capable of losing. Um, but they don't have anything to run on because they haven't delivered for those people, right? Like they not only can't talk to them, they don't, they don't do anything for them. Uh, and I, to me, that's a related problem. They- I totally, I totally, I totally agree. And listen, for a long time, the, the kind of corporate wing of the democratic party could argue I, I didn't or they could more credibly argue. Uh, I, I don't I still didn't agree with it, but they could more credibly argue that they had to sort of try to find this middle ground between voters and the donors who were crushing voters uh, and that that was what voters actually wanted. They, they, they used all sorts of terms for it, pragmatic, realistic, centrist, et cetera, et cetera. Getting. Something but I, yeah, but I think what's happened now is that. Not only is the Supreme Court handing down these rulings that I think are are shaking people to their core, but I also think that the corporate wing of the Democratic Party has effectively gotten everything that it wants on policy right now. Right. I mean, Biden, he he got the infrastructure bill, but they didn't pass any kind of like, you, you know, the Build Back Better bill or sort of new New Deal. So they've gotten what they've wanted on policy. And their popularity numbers have absolutely cratered to the point where the midterms could be uh, an epic uh, um, uh, electoral massacre for the Democrats uh, of historic proportions. So they can't anymore argue, at least not at this moment, that, you know, trying to split the difference between corporate donors and voters uh, is a really winning strategy. I mean, is there anybody out there who's like, yo, the Democrats are totally politically nailing it right now? Like, they're totally nailing it. Like, there's not a person. Like, m- maybe there's like a White House staffer who, who somehow thinks that. But there's not a real, actual rank and file voter who thinks that anymore. Uh, and, and again, I go back to, uh, I think that is a positive development. I think if you look at the things that people think the government has done well in history, you have to understand that those things are the product of, frankly, uh, to put it crudely, of people being pissed off at the Democratic Party, right? Social Security, Medicare, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. The, these didn't just happen because the you know, presidents woke up and decided to be nice guys. They, they woke up, uh, they, they happened because the public demanded it Uh, And Democratic politicians felt electorally threatened by their own voters if they didn't produce those things, if they didn't actually deliver. Now, I completely agree with you that in this moment, the top of the Democratic Party has no ability to communicate with a normal, regular person in the world. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, we we used to joke, I mean, you and I, when we, we, I think we first met back in sort of in the the mid, in the early 2000s. There was that whole running joke about, you know, John Kerry couldn't say anything without sounding like a senator. Right. I mean, he was I was for it before I was against it. And, you know, <laughs> there are all these jokes about it. But actually, that problem has gotten worse. I mean, oh, if you it, see Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer or any, uh, you know, leading Democrat on television, you, you can't. It's almost impossible to understand what they even what they're saying, much less what they actually believe. And I go back to the 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 the, the, the that the reason for that is because here's the thing: 
If you're simultaneously trying to pretend you care about voters while also trying to reassure your donors that you won't do anything to stop them from crushing voters, you end up sounding completely incoherent. You end up sounding like you believe in nothing, not just sounding like you believe in nothing. You end up making clear you believe in nothing. And I think, again, maybe a a crazy optimist, but I think finally, for, for those of us who've been frustrated by this and calling it out and reporting on it for 20 years, I think finally shit is hitting the fan and there are more normie Democrats out there who are like, you know what, uh, maybe you guys are, are, are right that they've been feeding us bullshit for 20 years and we're sick of this shit. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope you're right. I mean, look, they've they've been making these arguments for why their wing of the party, and essentially this, the corporatist wing of the party, right, which is completely taken over. And I think it is uh, expressed by something that you talk about all the time, which is the the transformation of the base, right? Like the, the richest counties, richest congressional districts in the country are like all Democrat now, which is something yep. that was true even 30 years ago, right? And, and, and that's a conscious decision that's taking place within, you know, the upper ranks of the party that they, they're now tending to these, to their donors. And they, and Matt, can I, can I be, let me be specific about that. Mm-hmm. The democratic party leadership, you're exactly right. Made a decision uh, or a series of decisions. I would say in the last 10 years about who the swing voter is. And they've made a decision that the swing voter in their view is the affluent uh, suburbanite and not the working class person. And it was Chuck Schumer who almost literally said that in 2016. We recount this in uh, the podcast we did called Meltdown, uh, which was about how the financial crisis and the aftermath set the stage for Donald Trump's ascent, which, by the way, Matt Taibbi was a a terrific guest in. we played this clip from Chuck Schumer, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but he said basically, this is right before the election, he said, listen, they asked him, well, what about the, the Democratic voters you're losing in Western Pennsylvania? And he said, well, you know, for every one working class Democrat we lose in Western Pennsylvania, we'll get two Republicans, former Republicans in the Philadelphia suburbs, right? And then he said, we'll replicate that in state after state after state. Point being, they made very clear that they think that the swing voter, the most important swing voter, the target swing voter is not a working class person in the industrial Midwest, but is an affluent suburbanite. And then, of course, what happened, you know, Pennsylvania and all those states where he predicted that the the swing that they were hoping for with Republican voters didn't happen and they lost the working class voter. And here we are. Well, it sort of happened. Right. Like on the congressional level, like if you look at those districts, those very affluent districts, they're winning. They're, they're killing it in those in those places. Sure. But it's not enough. I guess that's right. my point. It, you're right. It did. It did happen. But the the formula is miscounts Americans by their economic status. By that, I mean, there are far more working class people struggling to get by than there are comfortable, affluent suburbanites. So even if it even if it kind of works technically, like you're getting more affluent voters, but you're losing working class voters, that's not a mathematically sustainable formula for winning national elections. But right. they've continued to make that choice. So you add, so then the question is, well, why why would they make that choice? I would argue the reason they're making that choice is because it's 
easier to raise money from those affluent donors. It's easier to appease really, really big donors, millionaires and billionaires with policy if if the voting base you're trying to answer to is richer and more affluent and less offended by policies that crush the real working class of this country. In other words, it's it's easier to build, uh, to, to kind of um, uh, create unity uh, where unity shouldn't exist between voters and oligarchs if the voters are wealthier, right? So it's, it's much harder if you're trying to fuse oligarchs with working class people. Now, frankly, the Republican Party has done a good job of, unfortunately, in the, in the kind of um, uh, 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 what's the matter with Kansas formula, their unholy alliance are, you know, oligarchs and, and working class people. And that politics still hasn't torn apart. I mean, it, it's, well, it's an unbelievable contradiction. It's, it's tearing apart. You're right. I would agree. There's some. There's definitely some stress and tension there, for sure. But the thing is, they're new. They made the numerically correct choice. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Like, they brand themselves as a more working class party that recognizes that the that America, by virtue of its economy, its wildly unequal economy, there are more working class voters. And by the way, when we talk working class voters, we're not just, we're not talking just white working class voters. We're talking about people of color too. I mean. You, you see in these polls, I saw a poll recently, is not only that Biden is underperforming wildly among young people, but he's underperforming among Latinos. I think he's underperforming among African-Americans. And I think it's partially because the Republican brand, and we can talk about whether the Republican brand actually reflects their policy. That's a whole separate discussion. But at least the Republican brand, unlike the Democratic brand, the Republicans are clearly trying to at least portray themselves as a working class party. I, I, I think a lot of it is fraudulent on, on the policy. And the Democrats are, are not really even trying to portray themselves as a party that cares very much about the working class, other than like Joe Biden stumbling out to the to the podium every now and again and saying that he's a he's a union guy. Right. Which which is just rhetoric, but it is not in policy really a reality. Remember, remember the one gesture that the that Joe Biden made towards trying to you know set himself up as a as an agent of the working class against against the very wealthy when he talked about being uh, you know it was Scranton versus P- Park Avenue that's right that's Everybody right flipped out all the MSNBC hosts like Stephanie Rule went after him oh yeah oh that was that was incredible right and then, right? And then he and then he later like he later cha- he like immediately changed his rhetoric and was like I'm not demonizing anyone. At one point in his speech, he was like I'm from the corporate state of of of, of America, Delaware, and like you know, I, I mean, you, you're right. Like th- what's interesting about Biden is is that he he clearly there's some piece of his brain that still remembers like the New Deal Democratic Party, uh, or at least the the after the the, the went in the seventies and into the eighties when the Democrats were more of a New Deal party. So like synap you can see the synapses sort of fire when he says when he makes a comment like you just referenced, or he says I'm a I'm a union guy, I'm Scranton Joe. But then like he gets zapped back into the present where he's like surrounded by like, you know, Ivy League elites who were in the White House and big donors and the like. He's like, oh, I forgot. I have to I have to tell them, quote, nothing would fundamentally change, which is the other quote from the 2020 race where he got caught telling, you know, billionaire donors, hey, listen, if I'm elected, nothing in your life is going to change. Right. Yeah, exactly. And and, and as a result of that, though, of that transformation and the departure from you know the old 70s or or 80s 
uh, model where the Democratic, the, the, the classic Democratic Party politician once upon a time was someone who had, you know, like, like had some kind of relationship with unions somewhere, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and that person no longer exists, right? There's, there's, no, there's no feeder system for Democratic Party politics where they're getting people who don't come up through the Ivy Leagues and, you know, Wall Street and, and big consultancies. Like, you know, the, 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 polit- the prototypical politician in the party now is somebody like Pete Buttigieg, right, who just, who just sounds like, uh, you know, a McKenzie consultant. Right. And, yeah. And- I mean, there's this whole wine track, beer track situation inside the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, roughly speaking, you have wine track candidates are the more, um, you know, elite um, intellectual. Uh, I mean, all these cliches, but, you know, them when you see them, I mean, I think, you know, Barack Obama, a wine track candidate. Uh, Pete Buttigieg, a wine track candidate. You know, it used to be, you know, old, can- you know, Michael Dukakis, a wine track candidate. Uh, Walter Mondale, a beer track candidate. Bill Clinton, kind of a beer track candidate. Right. I mean, th- these are rough ways of thinking about how the party brands itself. And I think you're right. The leading uh, uh, politicians in the Democratic Party are almost all exclusively wine track. I mean, Pete Buttigieg literally had a fundraiser in a wine, in a wine cellar. Right. Like or in a wine cave. Right. It was the wine cave. Right. So I, I think you have to ask yourself, well. Is America really uh, does America really want wine track leadership? And I think the answer is overwhelmingly, obviously, no, that is not what America wants. And I think that's why the Democrats are in such peril and they've been rescued um, at least temporarily by Donald Trump being a complete a freak show spaz. Like that's how they won the 2020 election. With a, uh, Don- go ahead. With a pandemic. Yeah, with a pandemic, right. A pandemic, Donald Trump being sort of a total spaz. Uh, it wasn't really, I don't think the vote against Donald Trump uh, was was a vote against his ideology. It was it was sort of his behavior. I mean, the the I mean, just everything. The Trump circus. I think people were just tired of and fatigued from. And of course, the pandemic. Uh, and, and I think, but I think that if you try to take ideological lessons out of the uh, of the 2020 lesson, uh, election, oh, people were voting against uh, Donald Trump uh, ideologically. No, I think that's not true. But I also think one other thing is true. Just because the 2020 election wasn't ideological doesn't mean there wasn't a mandate. And I think this is a really important point, which is there was this amazing quote from uh, a, a Northern Virginia uh, uh, congresswoman named uh, Abigail Spanberger, a kind of cl- prototypical conservative Democrat, literally, I think, a former CIA agent. Right. This is like a, you know, grown in a lab as like a as like a, a, a triangulating corporate Democrat. And what she said early on in Biden's presidency, which I think there was, by the way, a moment where somewhere, somehow in the White House, Biden understood it for like one second, that he actually put forward that uh, American Rescue Plan, which actually was a kind of New Deal-ish or at least Great Society-ish attempt to help regular working people rather than doing what what Obama did right when he got in, which was just bail out a bunch of bankers. I think that was good. And Spamberger came out and said, you know, nobody elected uh, Joe Biden to be FDR. They just elected him to be, um, you know, to to return to restore normalcy. And here's the thing. Both things can be true at the same time. I think it is fair to say that a lot of people voted for Joe Biden uh, to just return things, to calm things down a little bit. 
uh, and because of the pandemic. But I also think that that not delivering consistently for the working class is ultimately at the root of why Joe Biden and the Democratic Party is in such trouble. That that the expiration of the child tax credit, the 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 uh, failure to to get really transformative economic policies passed that actually directly help the working class. The failure to do that consistently is ultimately why we're here. I mean, I think about student debt a, a lot, like if you, as an example, you could, I'm sure people who are listening to this have different opinions on, on whether student debt cancellation should happen or not. But here is one way I think it could have been successful. And now it's a complete another, just another failure, which is you could imagine a Joe, Bi- uh, not a Joe Biden, an FDR saying, listen, here's how we're going to deal with student debt. I made a promise to cancel some student debt. I don't care what the elite pundits are saying. I don't care what anybody is saying. I'm sending out a one page, one cent or two sentence letter to 50 million households in America. Dear voter, your student debt was X. Now it's Y because of my executive action today. Signed Joe Biden president. And that is the kind of thing where there would be a whole debate. Oh, my God, he's helping the rich. He's not helping people enough, whatever. But he could then point to, I have just directly helped 60, 70, 80, 90 million people in this country. And so whatever you're going to throw at me, I can point to how you have been helped. And somehow in the Democratic Party, just simply very straightforwardly helping people is never seen as the electorally viable option. It's every, oh, we got to train it. We got to change our message. We got to say this. We got to tweak our language here. It's never just fucking help people. That, <laughs> it's never that option. Right. I mean, it's never just govern better, right? Which, never, which, never. The, uh, yeah. And, 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 you know, to, to get back to, the, to the, the main point of your piece, which I think is like, which I think is crucial, you know, you, you go back over the last couple of decades, the Republicans have consistently leaned into the throw the bums out element of totally. the, their party, right? Like they, they've they recognized that uh, there is something there that is going to uh, build up their ranks and also set them up uh, well for the future if they respond to uh, anger and outrage in the population, which incidentally often has or even always has a, a, a you know, legitimate uh, cause somewhere behind it, right? Like people are pissed off for a reason. Like af- after 2008, that was the whole, that was the whole point of, of um, uh, you know, of, of, of your documentary. But look, the, the, the Democrats have done exactly the opposite. Like every time there's been any kind of movement um, of people within their party that says, look, we're not happy with the way things are, 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 are going. We want you to you know, deliver more uh, on the economic front. We, 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 we want you to stop bailing out Goldman Sachs and hoping that the, uh, the benefits trickle down to us. Uh, we want you to put some of these people in jail uh, and you know, stop putting welfare moms uh, in jail for fraud when you don't do it for, for Chase and all these other people. They crush those movements every single time Whereas on the other side, they keep leaning into it and getting stronger because of it, which I, I think is, is, the, is your thesis, right? I, 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 listen, absolutely. I think that Donald Trump, then to be, if it's not obvious already, I am not a fan of Donald Trump. I, I think Donald Trump is a, a, an extremely dangerous uh, 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 person, a demagogue, uh, all the, all the things, you know, kind of a classic uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, authoritarian strongman type figure. Um, but I do think 
that he recognizes somewhere in his reptilian brain uh, some basic political truths uh, that the Democrats somehow still do not understand, which is this. If you look at the Paycheck Protection Program, if uh, you, there was all this, you know, there's a, a, a little bit of a, a Democratic and elite media hand wringing about the program that, that gave uh, small businesses loans uh, uh, and the like. Oh, it's being abused. You know, th- th- this or that business doesn't deserve it. And look, I'll concede, of course. Y- yes, the PPP program was not perfect. But Donald Trump, somewhere in that brain of his, understood, hey, listen, we're in a crisis. I'm just going to straightforwardly make it as easy as possible to get people money as quickly as possible without any government, much paperwork or, or red tape at all. And there may be uh, problems at the margins and the like, uh, but that's what we what the public wants. Uh, and it was relatively successful and it was certainly politically successful as compared to the TARP bailout which was just uh, Obama handing, you know, uh, 13 bankers, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars. I think it was the same thing. There was, there was a story. I remember there was a story during the, uh, during the pandemic, I think it was in 2019 or 2020, where they, they you know, people were having trouble paying their, their, their uh, pandemic hospital bills. And Trump said, you know, we're just going to have the federal government pay that, pay their hospital bills. That's what we're going to do. We're just going to, we're just going to do that. Uh, it wasn't a completely successful program to, to do that. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that Clearly, somewhere in there, he innately understands that showing that you're delivering is what people actually want and what successful politics is. Now, I think on a lot of things, he didn't actually deliver. But my point is, is that you'll notice that so much of what the Democrats put forward is not only half measures, but they're also you know, they're means tested, they're made complicated, they're going to be precision targeted, they're going to be all sorts of all sorts of ways that make uh, helping people uh, the help impossible to access, which just reinforces people's feeling that it's it's a party that's not actually trying to solve problems and help people in a simple, straightforward way. Uh, And I think ultimately, I think the Republicans continue, I think they continue to understand this kind of politics. uh, And I think they're in some ways weaponizing it for really bad, bad ends and the like. And I think their motives aren't good. But at the political tactical level, they understand that far more than the Democrats understand. It drives me crazy, man, because the the thing I I sometimes think is that the Democrat, a lot of Democratic politicians and Democratic elites in D.C. seem to think that complexity uh, is a is the hallmark of looking smart. Like, hey, the, the more complicated, the more paperwork, the more um, uh, precise a, a particular policy or program is, it means the smarter we are. As opposed to actually the smartest stuff is the universal stuff, is the stuff that Bernie Sanders proposed. I mean, I remember on that campaign having, you know, I was Bernie Sanders 2020 presidential campaign speechwriter. There was this whole thing. I feel like there was a lot of eye rolling uh, uh, from uh, uh, from from wine track voters, uh, you know, Medicare for all or Bernie wants to do, you know, free college. Uh, you know, that that it's not only we don't like that, but that it, it can't be that simple because because complexity is what means uh, uh, is what is smart. And I feel like a lot of liberals I'm really getting far afield here, but I, I do think it's true. A lot of liberals prioritize feeling smart, seeing themselves as smart and that things that are simple are not seen among sort of liberal elites as smart. And I think it's exactly the opposite. 
that smart is just simply straightforwardly in a simple way delivering for people. And that what's really smart is to be creative enough to come up with policies and proposals and politics that help people and make it as easy as possible for people to get that help. I totally agree with you. And without without going too far afield into areas that might get either of us in trouble, <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, again, going back to the 90s when the, the new Democrats were all the rage, right? Uh, and it was it, this was the birth of, I think, that moment, right, where there were people coming up with ideas like the middle middle class tax cut. You know, this, this is how we were going to show that we were truly middle class, but, uh, uh, you know, for the middle class without alienating our pro growth strategy that's going to bring in all the Wall Street billions uh, and allowing, you know, Bob Rubin to to run the Treasury. Yeah, man, listen, listen, when you hear the terms, anyone who's listening. When you hear terms like um, uh, tax credit, when you hear a term like means testing, uh, when you hear terms like targeted, um, you know, listen, those are the hallmarks of democratic policy wonks, uh, democratic technocrats uh, thinking that simplicity, uh, uh, simplicity is stupid and complexity is smart. When again, I keep going back to it, smart is being creative enough to come up with simple policies that do what needs to be done. Smart is not burying people in paperwork. And so I, 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 th- this is a real pet peeve of mine. I mean, I, I, it, it really is that, that the way that the Democratic uh, Party has been conditioned to, to demonize universalism, to demonize um, to demonize uh, simplicity is really a problem. I mean, if you look at the at, at the FDI, I keep going back to this. Look at the most successful president in the history of the Democratic Party, arguably in the history of the country. He did two things. Okay, two 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 things. Well, he did you know lead the, the battle to win World War II, but domestically he did he did two things. One, he literally went out and said, "I welcome the hatred of the rich and powerful." I mean, he literally said that. It was like a literal quote like in a big speech, I literally welcome the rich and powerful to hate me. Okay. And then he also said, I'm going to put forward very simple, easy to understand programs that directly help the working class. Uh, And he also did one other thing. And it was really interesting to talk about this, talk about normie politics. He also violated all sorts of norms at the time. I mean, him, FDR, challenging the Supreme Court, threatening to pack the court, et cetera. I mean, there are all sorts of things that, you know, some of the laws that he passed were challenges at the Supreme Court, challenging various precedents and norms, et cetera, et cetera. And I was talking to a friend recently and was thinking, you know, it's weird how the Democrat, how Democratic voters and sort of in the, in the folklore of America, people look back on FDR as this great president. He wasn't a great president. He wasn't perfect. He did some pretty, some bad things when it came to internment camps and the like. But like, look back on him as a, a great American president. And I really think that if FDR lived today, if there was literally an FDR Democratic president today, there would be a a large swath of liberals who would be offended at his norm breaking. They would be they they would be offended, even though these same liberals look back at FDR as a great president. They would be offended at the tactics that FDR used to get the New Deal passed, you know, arm twisting in Congress, challenging the Supreme Court, like arguably bullying the Supreme Court. They would look at that as as a violation of norms. And that's actually part of the ultimately what we go back to when we're talking about normies, especially Democratic normies. Democratic normies love norms, even when the norms 
are screwing over the country. And that is what has to be broken to rebuild and, and create a much better, more in touch with America kind of Democratic Party. Yeah, and I think the 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 Trump years just exacerbated that whole for sure, right? Because uh, not only did they did, did the Democrats uh, renounce the the kind of populist movement within their own ranks in the form of the Sanders campaign, um, but after Trump got elected, the entire party overtly um, became about. Uh, bringing back norms, right? We are the defenders of norms, um, and which was an extension, I think, of of the the failed electoral strategy that like Hillary Clinton ran on. I mean, in, in in the middle of a period where everybody across all across the country was screaming about how much they hated the system and would would, would vote for anybody who wasn't a politician. Uh, you know, she, Hillary ran on experience and her twenty five years in Washington and you know, you can trust me because I've been there. It's an, and the, the the sort of embrace of norms is just is an extension of that same. And it's and, and listen, it's it's still that culture is still there. I mean, I saw this tweet. Uh, it was two days ago, maybe three days ago. So somebody tweeted around. It went all viral, and it was like it was a picture of like um, uh, Michelle Obama hugging George Bush, and um, I think it was Obama. Uh, uh, embracing John McCain and it was Bernie sort of uh, arm in arm with Biden and all these pictures. And the, and the tweet said something like uh, this America is gone forever. And I retweeted and said simply good. That America of like Barack Obama or the Obama's hug war criminal George Bush or, you know, both parties are together uh, sort of protecting quote unquote norms like, that's what got us here. That's the shit that brought us the Iraq war, the financial crisis. Like, I'm not saying that I, I want Trumpism in its place, right? But those norms uh, are bad, right? And right. norms that are bad don't deserve to be defended by normies. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, the, all of this overt nostalgia for the, for this you know, kind of cozy bipartisanship that incidentally, but never really existed. Um, but well, actually it did, right? I mean, the, the, there was a consensus about a lot, all, all the things that were important and yeah, hard. I mean, look at, I mean, like, like you, you know, you were a financial reporter, like all those financial deregulation bills, you know, oh, the Clinton years were so polarized and this and that, and, and they were polarized on like a, a relatively small number of issues, but like both parties joined together to like deregulate the entire financial system, which wiped out the global economy, right? right. Like, the, like those norms, uh, you know, you put West Wing music behind it. No, we got together and both parties reached across the, that was terrible. <laughs> that, right. that, that ruined millions of lives. And the you know the the, the post two thousand and eight bailouts, which you know again we, we we see this massive widening of the wealth gap after that, right? Which is happening again on, on a on a slightly smaller scale now with with the the post uh, COVID rescue, where you see this kind of flood of central bank money that basically went to the very wealthy, and now they're gonna now they're gonna tighten up the economy again and guess who's going to feel all the pain it's going to be uh most of the the larger share of the population right the 99 percent is they're going to feel all that pain and in the middle of all that 
to talk about defending norms and and you know being proud of defending the system it's it's a losing political strategy because you got all these people who are pissed off and feel like they've been screwed by the system and here you are saying that you're a representative of it 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 just it's not going to work it's it's definitely it's definitely not going to work they are the democrat and alex gibney and i wrote this uh op-ed for rolling stone uh a couple months ago when meltdown came out and it was basically like listen the, the the overall argument goes something like this. The January 6th hearings, as an example, I'm happy they're happening. I, I think that Donald Trump and the people who tried to engineer what they were, you know, the overthrow of the election and, and, and kind of incited that, that mob, those folks need to be held accountable. But liberals are insane to think that that is going to stop the rise of uh, right-wing fascism uh, or, or, and, and Trumpism. It is not. FDR understood this. There was this quote from FDR that I keep going back to. Uh, uh, and, and he basically was talking about, uh, uh, I'm going to pull it up here, um, uh, about the rise of fascism uh, across the world. Uh, he, it was a 1938 uh, fireside chat. Uh, and he said, um, he was talking about uh, the end of democracy in other countries. And he said, Democracy has disappeared in several other great nations, not because the people of those nations dislike democracy, but because they had grown tired of unemployment and insecurity, of seeing their children hungry while they sat helpless in the face of government confusion and government weakness through lack of leadership. And here's and he goes on. Finally, in desperation, they chose to sacrifice liberty in the hope of getting something to eat. And ultimately, I think that rings true, that FDR understood at that moment in history that delivering on the New Deal wasn't just morally necessary, wasn't just macroeconomically necessary, but was necessary to stop the rise of fascism in America at the time. And the rise of fascism in America at the time was very serious uh, back then, uh, just as I think it is today. And today's Democratic Party does not want to understand that. They want to believe that they can hold a January 6th hearing, hold up Liz Cheney as allegedly some great hero, uh, sort of play the West Wing music, say we have to defend democracy without showing that democracy actually delivers real material gains for people. FDR understood that you can't just say democracy is great, vote for democracy, if democracy is is making it hard for people to get something to eat. Now you can ask, well, why don't the Democrats today understand that? They don't understand it or don't want to understand it because to understand that would mean we have to actually go after uh, and, and regulate and restrict the power of the donor class that is funding us and that is creating the problems in the country in the first place. We, we, we actually would have to not only tell voters we're solving problems, we'd have to challenge the power of our donors who are creating those problems. And that is the last thing a corporate politician, corporate career politician like a Joe Biden ever wants to do, arguably can even imagine doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just two quick things about that. Number one, they they can't really envision any political solution that involves cutting off their donors, which correct, which correct. basically which basically screws them uh, completely going forward because because all, all their solutions that are viable uh, involve that is like step number one. Number two, like you know, I think what you're talking about with January sixth. I have a little bit of a different take on this. Like, 
you know, I, I think some of, some of what they're saying in these hearings, like I, I do think it was a very serious moment. I think there, there are people who need to be held accountable for, you know, for what they've done. But, but I also think a lot of it, there's an excitement around it um, in the media class and among Democrats, because for them, this is an issue they think they can run on, right? So they're, they're, they're hyping it beyond, you know, to a degree, in, in my opinion, they're hyping it a little bit more than uh, than it garners, right? Than it deserves in real life. Right, but the thing is, I, I mean, and the thing is, but just, just that, quickly. they have nothing else to hype. Right, exactly. They don't have anything else to offer. Like exactly, so- exactly. They 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 always think that they 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 they're gonna win on some political, um, you know, something because they don't have anything positive to offer. So it's always got to be something like this, like Russia Gate or uh, Ukraine Gate or January sixth or something. And they, think I mean, think, think about it, think about it in terms of this. I mean, what kind? I I, I keep going back to this. What kind of stupid assholes pass? the American rescue plan and have it include an expiration date on the child tax credit, right? I mean, just think about that for a second. There was polling out about the child tax credit that showed that among Republican Trump voters who received the child tax credit, Biden's approval ratings were far higher, right? So not only a moral policy, but a politically effective policy that was literally working to help Joe Biden and the Democratic Party politically. And these stupid, overthinking, wonk idiots at a moment when they had a mandate to pass something, when that was a moving train, it was going to pass. They time expired it so that it expired heading into the midterm elections. Like, like you can call that corrupt. You can call it stupid. It's it's politically moronic. But my point is they could be campaigning. Had it not expired, Joe Biden could simply be running around the country being like, you know, that 300 bucks you're getting every month. Like, thank me. Thank the Democrats. We're going to do more of that. Right. But they don't have that to sell anymore. The all, so, so all they're trying to do is sell the one six hearing. Right. They don't they can't sell. Hey, that 300 bucks that's coming to you is us. They can't sell. Hey, the, you know, that letter I sent you telling you that your student debt, I sent it out to 50 million people, which is, you know, 50 million households is like, you know, at least two people per household. That's like you're you're sort of helping 100 million people. They don't have that to sell either. What do they have to sell? They have nothing to sell. And that's not I mean, that's not anyone's fault but their own. And it's actually worse than that. Right. I mean, you think there, there, there were things in the CARES Act that they've actually had to go in and, and, and take away from people. Right. Yeah. Yep. Like, in other words, like imagine the shame of a would be, uh, you know, working class party that's got to take away, um, you know, you know, reinstate student debt payments, uh, <laughs> that, that were, you know, that were forestalled by Donald Trump. Uh, it just, it just shows that the, the party doesn't have, doesn't have a whole lot to run on doesn't understand how to communicate with with ordinary people and yeah i think I, I think you're right i think they 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 just don't they don't want to go there they don't know how to go there and and and, and the thing is you're not going to get a mass turnout if the only thing you're promising is a nice calm west wing television show i mean ultimately that i feel like that is the democratic sales pitch they're, they're basically saying hey listen you like the, the the television show the west wing with norms and, you know, nice patriotic music. Uh, and we don't have anything economically to really sell you. 
Um, we do. If you want to preserve a West Wing television show, uh, when you turn on cable TV news where things are are quote unquote normal, that's what you should go vote for us for. That's basically what they're saying. And the Republicans are going to be saying, um, "Do you like what's going on in the economy? Uh, do you like?" Uh, what's going on with inflation. And even though the Republicans don't, in my view, don't really have solutions to the problems, uh, they're arguably going to make the problems worse. They, the Republicans are smart enough to know that that, that's all that they have to say uh, when, when the other, when the ruling party is simply offering a West Wing television show and not material gains for the working class. Yeah. And, and, and again, without getting into it, I think there's some other like weird boutique woke politics that are t- are totally incoherent to the most voters. And they're running a lot on that, thinking that that's going to do something for them. I, I, that part I don't get either, because that I would have thought that that was sort of against the the DNA of this party. But it's it's changed. Uh, in- Look, you remember you remember I, I always go back to the to the Bernie campaign and really both campaigns. Um, Bernie Sanders, there was a a critique of Bernie Sanders. And I want to be clear, like I worked for Bernie. Bernie and I, you know, it's not that we have issues, but I haven't talked to him in a while. And, you know, it wasn't exactly a pleasant experience working on that campaign. I won't bore you with those details. So I'm not here to shill for Bernie Sanders. But what I'm saying is, is that Bernie Sanders during his campaigns was repeatedly criticized for having too allegedly crass or simple a view about universalism, universal programs. He's too focused on class, not enough on other issues than class. And the thing is, is that I actually think that ultimately Bernie Sanders had it right. It's not that Bernie Sanders ignored race or equality or any anything like that. It's that it is true that Bernie Sanders prioritized an agenda of um, universal economic uplift, universal economic programs. And there is a larger and larger part of the Democratic Party that feel that argues, probably cynically, but that argues that universal uh, economic class-based programs somehow are in conflict with uh, identity. Uh, and, and I think that's, frankly, I think that's wrong. Uh, but I also think it's terrible politics that the, that successful politics is a politics of um, universal uh, class-based appeals uh, across uh, different identities. Uh, it's not to say that identities should be ignored or, 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 there, or we, people should pretend that identity doesn't exist. But first and foremost, in a multicultural country, uh, class-based acro- across uh, different identities uh, t- tend to be the most unifying agenda. I mean, I can't even believe I have to articulate this because it's, it's so obvious. It's so much a part of our history. But I think that there is a cynical part of the Democratic Party that wants to prioritize identity, certainly over uh, a class and class-based economics in specific. And, and it goes back to, well, why would, they, why would that part of the party want to, why is there a part of a party that would want to do that? Well, it goes back to the donor. Like, right. Like, like Jamie Dimon of J.P. Morgan is happy to have to to wave a pride flag uh, and happy, uh, you know, but he's not happy to deal with higher taxes on the rich. So the corporate part of the party is happy for things to focus on exclusively on identity and not on economics. And again, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that that identity should not be anywhere in the discussion. It should be part of an agenda. But if you're not leading with a class-based economic agenda, uh, then you're not talking to everybody, and that's a problem. Yeah, I, I would actually go one uh, go even further and say that, that the 
that particular critique of Bernie, that that was a critical moment in the history of the Democratic Party, right? Because there was that moment in early 2016, was it, when he was he was drawing blood against Hillary with his critique of her uh, her commissions for her speech uh, speaking fees from Goldman, right? And uh, and the all oh, right, the, right. Her her comment that you know if we if we something with the bank if we if we crack down on the banks would there, would would that end racism? Would that, I mean that was an incredible comment. I mean it was like I mean you're right. It, they, they came out and just screamed it. They just screamed right. what you know the sort of the cynical politics of identity. Right, exactly. Like the, we we want to because they tried a couple of other things. I don't even remember what it was as as a response to to Bernie's criticisms, and they didn't they didn't land right. But right. when 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 Hillary did that line about how if, if we broke up the banks tomorrow, would that end would that end racism? It it changed the conversation, and uh, and I, I also think it messed with Bernie's head. I mean, I, I don't know if you would agree with me on this, and uh, if you don't want to comment on it, I totally understand. No, but- I wasn't on the 2016 campaign, but I, I listen. I think he, I, I think that the there were two things in, in the 2020 campaign. There were two things that were definitely designed. Actually, three things that were definitely designed to psych out Bernie Sanders. One, there was Joe Biden being nice to Bernie Sanders. Right. Uh, that Joe Biden personally, as opposed to a lot of other Democratic politicians, Joe Biden was actually interpersonally nice and respectful to Bernie Sanders, which I think did get in his head. Uh, I think that... Which was um, totally not true of, of Hillary, by the way, but go ahead. Absolutely. I mean, th- that's actually the funny part is that Hillary, so, you know, a- as a politician, how it's really... It, the, the better way to have defanged Bernie was for her to just be actually be nice to him, to kind of schmooze him. Uh, I mean, I don't think that... I, have- I, you know, she, she didn't have the political sense to, to do that. Um, I think... But I think the other thing that, that kind of psyched out uh, Bernie, uh, two, two other things, is one, the, certainly the um, attempt to weaponize identity against his class-based message. Uh, it, it was very powerful, very cynical, uh, uh, and obviously the media joined in with that. Uh, and I also think that what psyched him out was this other idea, um, which has become very powerful in the Democratic Party, which is that... Um, contested primaries are bad, uh, that we all have to be nice to each other in the primaries, uh, that uh, anything where the candidates are going after each other jeopardizes losing general elections. I wrote about this right after the campaign, which is sort of the tyranny of etiquette. And by the way, it's completely ahistorical, right? Most Democratic, almost all Democratic, uh, successful Democratic president, presidents, candidates who've won the presidency, uh, have gone through vigorous, vicious Democratic primaries. Uh, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, 2008, one of the most vicious primaries, didn't weaken Barack Obama at all. But in the 2020 race, this idea became preeminent that Bernie can't, none of the candidates, especially Bernie, should attack any other candidate because that's unacceptable. Sort of the Ronald Reagan 13th commandment or whatever, 11th commandment uh, applied to the Democrats. And I just think not only is it wrong, not only is it ahistorical, it was designed to serve the establishment. It was designed to uh, to serve those who didn't want the establishment uh, to lose. Uh, I told Bernie 
uh, in no uncertain terms, that the only way he was going to win the nomination was to rip it out of the cold, dead hands of the establishment. Uh, and the and so you have to see that everything that the establishment was trying to construct, uh, especially that you know tyranny of the of etiquette idea that you shouldn't attend, he shouldn't attack Joe Biden. Bernie's attacking Joe Biden. This is the worst thing ever. I mean, Joe Biden uh, has been laying waste to, to so many things during his career in the Senate. The crime, did the crime bill, did the bankruptcy bill. The, he, he, led, he led the Democratic side of the fight for the Iraq war. The idea that this couldn't be attacked in a Democratic primary is a, a lot of bullshit, but it was a created narrative to prevent those attacks, to preempt them. And I think, frankly, it, 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 that sort of that sort of cultural, it sort of immersed the entire primary system in that culture. And I think it, it it inhibited us. Yeah, I mean, you know, Hillary went out of her way after after 2016 to talk about how um, I think the, the quote was his, his attacks did lasting damage. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's like incredible. Like like yeah, she's the person who like who like just, you know ripped the face off of Barack Obama. And by the way, as critical as I am of Hillary Clinton on, on a lot of different things, I have no problem with Hillary Clinton going after Barack Obama in a primary. And I have no problem with Barack Obama viciously going after Hillary Clinton in a primary. I mean, you can, you can criticize the specific attacks, but that is what a primary is for. That's exactly what it is for. Uh, and, and the idea that primaries are bad, I think it's one of the most kind of insidious. I mean, kudos to whoever came up with that sort of notion and popularized it among normie Democrats. Uh, but it is really, really insidious. And it's a it's a terribly destructive idea. And I, and I, and I think it worked on Bernie, though. I mean, I mean, look, you, you know him a lot better than I do. I mean, I, I spent some time with him, but the his demeanor, I, I thought in 2020 was significantly altered. Right. Like like in, in 2016, I, th I, I always felt like he he had a direction that he he understood pretty clearly, although I, although that early thing that Hillary said about, you know, will that end racism? I think that started started to work on his brain a little bit that in the Bernie bro thing. Um, but by 2020, that was uh, that was clearly on his mind. Like he, he, he was he was clearly thinking about a lot of stuff that didn't have to do with his message, which, um, I think hurt him. I don't know, but, but, but. I mean, listen, I, 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 there was a moment in the campaign. Uh, now that we're talking about this, uh, that I've mentioned a couple times before that to me was the turning point moment. Um, and, um, it was a, it's a, it was a very depressing moment for me. I'm, listen, and for folks who don't know, I've known Bernie for 30 years. Uh, I worked, it was, I was his press secretary back in the late nineties. I think that's, that's actually, I, I met Matt, uh, sort of right, right around then. Um, and it was this moment where, um, Zephyr Teachout published this op-ed, uh, where she, she wrote that, um, that, uh, Joe Biden has a corruption problem. And to be clear, it wasn't anything about, you know, the Hunter Biden stuff or anything like that. It was, it was totally legit stuff about how Biden had served his donors in the Senate to pass things like the bankruptcy bill and, you know, uh, Wall Street bailouts and the like. I mean, totally, Stuff that is not even it's not even up for debate. And the media, when the op ed came out, it was, oh, my God, Bernie Sanders, the surrogate is now personally attacking Joe Biden and calling him corrupt. And I felt it was a moment where Bernie could have said, listen, I may not agree with the exact 
terminology of what my campaign surrogate said, corrupt, whatever. But Joe Biden has a lot to answer for because these are all examples of him harming working class people. And instead, what Bernie Sanders did was he apologized. He literally called up CBS News and said, I want to go on camera right now. And I want to apologize to Joe Biden and say uh, that I don't think Joe Biden is corrupt in any way, shape or form. And to me, that was the moment where um, uh, the candidate made clear uh, that he wasn't willing to do what, in my view, was necessary to be done to actually win the presidency. Now, you can debate why didn't he do that? Maybe, you know, he, he thought the tactic of calling Biden was corrupt was bad or was it a values question? He, you know, he didn't have the temerity, he didn't have the stomach to, to, to go after Biden because he likes Biden as a person. That's the only person who knows the answer to that is Bernie Sanders. And I, I say this all as I think Bernie Sanders is a man who has good values. Uh, I think he um, I, I, this is not a, a personal attack on him. It is only to say that I think that was the turning point moment where he signaled to those who were paying attention at the time that he might not be willing to do what was necessary to win the president, win the nomination and win the presidency to do, by the way, what every other winning candidate has done in the same situation. He wasn't required to do things that other candidates, Barack Obama in 2008, Bill Clinton in 1992, he didn't need to do anything extraordinary, but those successful candidates were willing uh, to rip the nomination away from those who didn't want them to have it. And at that moment, at that particular moment, it was clear that Bernie Sanders wasn't necessarily willing to do that. And that was a tragedy. And I think about that moment every single day. Yeah, I mean, if you added like one percent of Michael Jordan's personality to, to exactly yes, Michael Jordan's a great that's a great example. Yes, a guy who would do who would do anything to win anything. Right, right, exactly. Uh, and, and Bernie just needed a little bit of that, you know. Um, yes. You know, and, and I remember I remember talking to him shortly after he got to the Senate, and him telling me the story about how he he wanted some money for some program like. $7 million, something like that. And he was gearing up to do like all this work, you know, and get a coalition together and I don't know, write a bill or something like that. And I, somebody, it might even have been Ted Kennedy. If, if, if Does that timeline make sense? Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, it told him, no, no, Bernie, just you have to talk to the right person in the right committee and it's done, you know, like, yeah. and, and Bernie was, he was so like blown away by like the power of the Senate um he was kind of awed by it you know uh, yeah yeah and i remember hearing that in his voice and thinking on the one hand that's really interesting right that that you know that here's an, here's sort of a, a normal person getting used to the idea of having enormous power um but it wasn't in his it wasn't in his blood to go against the institution in that way you know no and i, and I think i mean if you want me to i mean one, one thing i will say is that i think that Sometimes people who have the pedigree of Bernie, which is to say people who really came from the real outside, who then get on the inside, they know what it's like to be on the outside. Uh, and they have some uh, more acute fear of being back on the outside. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying that Bernie Sanders sold out. I'm not saying that. No, I no. Think, I think he stayed true to his values. But I do think the um, having been on the outside, recognizing the power of what you can do, 
I think it's somewhat limited, but recognizing the power of what you can do both for the, the, the overall political discourse and actually passing legislation on the inside, it becomes sort of even more acutely scary to think about if you fuck up and you get completely marginalized and you're on the outside again, you know what it's like to feel like to be on the outside. And so it's, there's sort of a, there's sort of that perpetual struggle. Like, am I pushing too hard? And maybe I'm afraid to push too hard because I know what it's like to be on the outside. So maybe I'm afraid to go for the jugular. So you're constantly sort of trying to weigh what to actually do, where, when to push and when not to push, or am I pushing too far? Now, I, I happen to think that, frankly, he could have pushed a lot, a lot farther. Uh, he had a lot more running room to go, uh, but it would have required violating some basic, uh, some some artificially constructed, uh, very recently constructed norms in the Democratic Party. In particular, for instance, the norms of like, you know, you shouldn't criticize another Democrat. Uh, I just think you're right. It got into his head a little bit. Right. Hey, do you have time to take up a couple of questions before we go? Yeah, I got about uh, I got 10 minutes. All right. Let's uh, let's let's take a couple of see, see what we got here. We got a lot of people in the room. 711 people and so let's see uh thanks everybody for coming out um so we have no war you're up matt what's up brother david nice thanks to speak for, uh... to you again twice in like like 15 hours good to speak with you brother um <laughs> hey matt what's how's the book coming along and what's going to happen when you're back on useful idiots is going to be a three-way i mean Aaron and uh, Kitty have developed a really good rapport and it's working really well. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see you back, but I'm sad. I'll be sad to see. Uh, well, see I, I would leave. I, no, no, that, look, I, it, that, that, that's kind of far away at this point. I'm, I'm uh, so, I'm so buried under uh, obligations for that book that uh, I, I wish that that were a decision I had to make uh <laughs> soon <laughs> but i wouldn't worry about it in the in the near future so let's put it that way yeah all right on this birdie stuff i didn't expect to talk about it but you know uh, david you said that that bernie stayed true to his principles but he voted for the cares act he like bent his knee and and the thing you just mentioned about about uh the zephyr teachout article was a turning point for me as well that was like really just disappointing you gotta have you gotta have like you gotta stick to your morals and calling him corrupt is completely fair joe biden is corrupt he did push the bankruptcy bill out of corruption for credit card corporations that that fund his campaigns that's corruption whether we call it campaign donations these companies aren't giving money out of the kindness of their heart they're they're doing it for for they're investing money in politicians to get no, a return an, uh, on me, the back end. I'll, I'll cut you off. Uh, like, like, uh, in the sense of that, I, I, I agree with you. You don't have to convince me. I, I, I think that's why I said that was one of the most uh, difficult moments for me uh, on that campaign. It was deeply disheartening. I th- as I said, I think about it every day. Um, I, I think that Bernie Sanders has good values. I don't think he sold out. I think he um, made a in an incorrect tactical, a tactically incorrect decision. And I think part of well, that. Who decision, was in his ear making those decisions, uh, David? I mean, well, I'll, curious, t- I'll tell you, man, I kind of want the inside you know take from you, you know who somebody was there telling him like, not was to it, make those was decisions. It, was you know who was in his Weaver ear telling him not to make those? Are you, you going to let me talk? 
You know who was in his ear telling him not to make those decisions was the person you're talking to. The person you're talking to was in his ear and was in everyone's ear on that campaign telling him to make different decisions. That was documented. You don't have to believe me. You can go read it in the New York Times. Jonathan Martin did a whole a whole thing about how um, I, at one point I was punished for saying that we need to go after uh, Joe Biden even more. So my point is not to absolve myself. I, I wasn't perfect on that campaign. I'm sure I made a bunch of mistakes. <laughs> but, the, but the point is, is that the idea that everybody uh, who was on that campaign was complicit and supposedly weaking out to Joe Biden, I just reject that. It's factually wrong. And I've got the scars to prove it. And that, and All right. Well, well, I, I did want to ask a question. I was trying to ask a question, uh, David, before you cut me off and you said you were going to cut me off and you did. Anyway, I don't want to litigate that. It's, it's unimportant. But, you know, I was trying to speak. Whatever. No, let me ask no. you. Let me ask a separate question. Let me ask a separate question. There's been a lot of discussion of codifying Roe lately. And that's in in the. Uh, in the blurb about what this column is supposed to be about. And we haven't, you guys haven't discussed Roe too much at this point, but I do want to ask what would codifying do first off? Doesn't, doesn't that still leave you open to a Supreme court overruling that legislative uh, uh, issue that the, the Congress legislating that. And second, who do we like, I think it's important to talk about blame right now on on why this happened. And for me, I look at Barack Obama allowing them to steal the the Supreme Court uh, nomination for Scalia, and and I look at RBG as well, who didn't retire after Obama asked her to retire, and she wanted to uh, kind of gender politics kind of. Uh, stuff and have a woman uh, nominate her her successor, and then we got Donald Trump instead, and she she wasn't you know she died during Donald Trump's term. But I, I think I think appointing uh, blame at this point is very important to see how things could have been different and how they need to be done different going forward. So if you guys those two questions, I'd appreciate. Sure, I mean I, I'll I'll, t- I'll take the, the question of blame. Look, I think there's a lot of people who to blame. I think our, uh, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg not not retiring is. Uh, was a travesty. I think the liberals who, uh, liberal pundits who defended that. I mean, there was one that, I mean, we, on my, on our podcast, Lever Time, which folks can find at levernews.com, uh, we discussed some of the worst takes of all time. And I think we came to a consensus that the worst, ta- the worst take of, worst liberal take of recent history was the, I think it was Emily Bazelon's piece in 2013 that was headlined in Slate, Stop Telling Our, our RBG to Retire. Uh, probably the worst take uh, in, in retrospect in, in modern uh, history uh, of liberal take. So I think that was certainly part uh, to blame. I, you know, I don't necessarily blame Obama. I blame Obama for a lot of things. I don't necessarily blame him for the Merrick Garland situation in the sense that I don't know what power he really had. I mean, yes, he could well, have gone out have and tried to pressure appointed? Republicans. He could, he could he have tried to recess appoint? I, 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 he, he, yes, there are things he could have done, but ultimately... I think the real thing to blame Obama for is the clip that we played last night on our call-in show uh, for The Lever, which was the clip that's gone viral and it's kind of blowing liberals' brains out. It's like uh, this clip is a 10-second clip of Obama saying, uh, my number one, the first thing I'm going to do as president is sign the Freedom of Choice Act. 
And then uh, that was in 2007. And then in 2009, early, very early in 2009, he did a press conference as president and said, uh, the Freedom of Choice Act is not my highest legislative priority. Exactly. Uh, and when they had a large uh, uh, Senate, uh, Senate majority. So I think I think that there's blame there. Now I also think that. But, but to I that, think you point, asked the question. I want to. No, no, hold on a minute. I'm going to. I'm going to answer the question. I'm curious if codifying does protect. It, does That's what codifying. I'm going to answer. I'm going I'm to answer that question. Cool. Yeah, so the, yeah. Thank you. The, the 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 answer to that question is that the Supreme Court ruling says um, uh, it's a ruling about uh, what states can and cannot restrict when it comes to abortion, uh, and it basically says that because there's not. Uh, they are ruling that because there is no, under their interpretation, constitutional right to abortion, that states may restrict abortion. That was basically the ruling that came down. So codifying Roe at the federal level in statute would 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 um, uh, preempt state restrictions on um, uh, abortion. However, you are right that ultimately uh, another case could come to the Supreme Court saying that a, a, a straight up case saying that uh, abortion uh, violates uh, the right to life, liberty uh, and, and the pursuit of happiness, the, the various constitutional clauses and that abortion as a whole, as a concept, is a constitutional violation, therefore striking down uh, state laws that protect uh, uh, reproductive rights and any federal law to codify Roe. Now, I would say even knowing that reality, just knowing that that could happen is not an excuse for for row codification not to happen right now. No, I agree uh, with that. I mean, but but it does seem that that even codifying, which again, your clip is great. Obama said he would do it. Biden said he would do it, and and, yep. and they didn't do it. And they, they have the power to do it. They can cut the filibuster as soon as the Republicans get back into power in the in the Senate coming up uh, probably in six or eight months. They're going to cut the filibuster and they're going to have. Right. It's not it's not a long term solution. It's, it's definitely right. not a long. But 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 it's but we're no longer in a long term world. Right. We're, well, the long term like, you got to do is packing the court. Right. Absolutely. Like, Expa- expanding the court. I mean, like, I, I do think that's a, in the long term. If you do not expand the court and or create term limits, but but certainly expanding the court, exactly, then then you're not then you're ultimately relegating America uh, to to be governed by a panel of six unelected people uh, for the next potentially thirty years. Okay, no, I'm I'm going to cut you off here. Oh, David's got to go, and I just want to have one more question before before he does, if if that's possible. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, man. Unblock me on Twitter. Thank you. Thanks, man. All Block right. me on Twitter, my friend. I appreciate you. Love you, brother. All Love right, you, Matt. Take care. Uh, I think it's Citizen. Hello. How are you guys? Good hey to see you, Matt, David. Hey, Thanks. Matt, by the way, really quick, I just want to let you know I'm glad to see that you're now uh, best friends with Susan Sarandon and that uh, hopefully we'll see a new meme here of Matt and Louise driving off the cliff into the right wing <laughs> conspiracy. <laughs> Yeah. So um, anyway, uh, you know, I the, I, I kind of wanted to, you know, I'm, I'm not heavily into, uh, you know, being a political junkie and such, but I've been watching things for a while and I do do tend to read. I love love your books, uh, Matt. I've read uh, a lot of them. Um, and I am wondering if the Democratic Party 
really hasn't achieved what they're trying to achieve. Um, I know that there's a thing that we need to push or people are saying that we need to push them. I think David mentioned that to do uh, what they want. And I've heard that, you know, argument with both parties for you know, mostly the Democrats uh, for many, 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 many years since back, like with Ralph Nader. And it just doesn't seem to happen. And to me, it almost seems like what they really wanted to do and what they pretty much successfully did was crush the left. <laughs> um, they they were able to, you know, uh, pretty much expose Bernie um, uh, a bit. I, I, I don't want to get into the blame game thing of, about Bernie. I'm sure he's a wonderful uh, man and, and, and principled guy. Uh, but, you know, he somewhat uh, collapsed on this, maybe a little bit less than the squad. But it seems like uh, they that they've become pretty feckless and not not you know really there is no real progressive side to the Democratic Party and granted that's been happening obviously since uh, the Clinton era and the Clintons were very smart politically uh, Hillary was very smart very smart and I agree with what you guys said about um, she didn't she wasn't able to handle Bernie the way uh, Joe Biden did. Uh, but Biden was never FDR, um, and he was never going to come through on a lot of these things that that everybody thought that he was going to come through on. So it, to me, it was absolutely no surprise that a lot of the stuff got gutted, um, you know, uh, and that the important stuff got passed first. Uh, so basically, just to wrap that that bit up is um, I to me having no policy having a media that is able to pick up on things that help destroy your opponents and stuff like that and turning individuals against each other and fighting against each other over scraps and little things is as old as you know Rome is uh, you know it's 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 a long time uh, you know, way to keep people from, uh, you know, you know, getting what they they actually are trying to get. So to me, it seems like they actually are accomplishing something. You guys actually talk to these guys a lot more. So maybe they they are vapid and don't have any ideas. But to me, it seems like not having any ideas is the point. Thank you. So 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 I, I, let me respond to that very quick because I got to run in a second. But I, I certainly think that um, left to their own uh, faculties, that, that Democratic leaders don't really want to do anything. Uh, I, I think that's absolutely right. true. I think in, in, a, in a lot of ways, they are getting what they want and what their donors want. Now, I do think that competes with, they also do want to get reelected. Uh, so I most rank and file politicians want. Uh, and so, you know, I think the Democratic leadership, I mean, part, part, you know, maybe they don't care about it as much as, as other politicians uh, for various reasons, because they know they're going to if they get voted out, if they have to leave, if they're old and they retire, it's not they don't care anymore. But but I do think um, that you have to presume that they that at least some of the rank and file members of Congress want to get reelected uh, and you have and, and you have to sort of behave with that presumption. But I don't think it's overly cynical to think, I think, so this is a long way of saying I agree with you, I don't think it's overly cynical to think that the Democratic leadership, if they could wave a wand, they want all of us to leave them alone so that they can <laughs> have their nice fancy jobs and preserve the status quo, whatever and however dystopian that status quo is. Hey, listen, I'm sorry to cut it short, but I, I got to go, Matt. Um, I right, got to go. My, my hey, thanks for inviting me. Hey, Matt. Hey, Matt. Really, yeah. 
David, can you, can you act? Yeah, go ahead. Thank you, David. Can I, can, I just, um, can I just very quickly remind everyone who's listening? If you want to find our work, go to levernews.com. Get subscribe to our email list. You know, there's a free subscription thing right up there. Just subscribe. I would appreciate it. And Matt, I just want to thank you. Thank you so much for having me, man. It's really no, great to talk, as always. Anytime. It's always fun. All right, man. Take All right. Thank you, David. Take care. Um, hey, Matt, really yep. quick. Can, 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 I, I'd like you to comment on that because, to be honest with you, I'm not sure. I, I do understand what David was saying about, mm-hmm. obviously, uh, politicians want to be reelected, but a lot of them are kind of pretty solid in their positions. And I'm not so sure the Democrats are really that worried about losing the midterms because it's almost kind of like, uh, you know, gives it two years of, of, of things to happen for them to have more diversive uh, you know, conversation uh, to to get votes. I mean, does what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, no, I I agree with you. I, I would go a lot farther than David would. I look to me, the, the the Democratic Party has always primarily been to me about money, uh, and it's about it's about what this uh, friend of mine uh, calls the blob in in Washington. It's the sort of amorphous group of permanent um job holders uh who have cushy sinecures at think tanks and um and you know they would rather lose and keep those jobs um than have somebody like Sanders win and have those jobs be eliminated right and so i i i think this this came up a lot in both 2016 and 2020, where the party, I, th- I think if they're thinking about it in a sober, in a sober fashion, they, they know exactly what they would have to do in order to get more votes, uh, get more people elected, govern more effectively, um, you know, have a, have a more effective justice department. Like, you know, they, they know very well, just, just to take the area that I covered a lot, you know, who was guilty of massive bank fraud after 2008, but they're, they just, they made a very cynical decision that they just want to keep the money tree enrolling. And I, I think that's what they're all about. Uh, the, what, what's the new development for me is that these people, I think used to be pretty skilled at splitting the baby between keeping uh, the donors uh, happy and at least being competitive in elections. And I, I think they've, you know, absent Donald, without Donald Trump to run against, I think they've completely lost any kind of winning message uh, when it comes to, you know, being competitive electorally. So, you know, but, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I, I don't think, I don't think they're about accomplishing anything. <laughs> so um, I would agree with that. I, I also have to go soon. I'm going to take one more question, though, if I could. Uh, Citizen, thank you so much for uh, for, for asking. And uh, let's see who's next in the queue. Um, looks like Krister. Uh, you're up if you... Hey, Matt. Love your reporting and, uh, and your books. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks I so- think the... The, uh, the hope for my question is deteriorated with, with your answers, uh, your and David answers the last two, but I was wondering, you know, David was saying these social issues like the overturning of Roe might galvanize Democratic voters to pressure the Democratic Party to actually achieve some kind of results. Is there any kind of hope on other issues like cow to Wall Street or these billion dollar care packages sent to Ukraine with 
no strings attached, which I think are as important as abortion issues. Is there any any way that those can be confronted either by voters or even the Republican Party in some way? Yeah, uh, that's a great question, but I I just don't have a whole lot of hope that like they they know the way back at this point. Like I I think the the overturning of Roe is a massive wake up call, not just to the party but to the party's voters because for your generations now they they've been sleepwalking uh, and and told that yeah it's okay you you can vote for these people who are sort of corpse-like uh, non-entities who don't really say anything on the stump and don't try to accomplish anything. We had a, we had high hopes for Barack Obama, and then it turned out that he um, just continued a lot of the policies that he ran against um, you know, when you know, that, that Bush created. Uh, but these voters now, now they recognize that they've, they've placed their trust in a party that didn't per- didn't protect the one thing that they said that they they would make sure it would never happen, and um, you know I, I just I just don't have a lot of confidence that this that this particular group of uh, bureaucrats who's, who, who runs the modern Democratic Party that they know the way back to getting you know eighty million votes <laughs> like who, who who are those people who, who which intellectuals are there. Uh, running the party who who know the way, right? Like they're talking about issues that make no sense to most people. It feels like to me, I don't know. What do you, what, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think, you know, just reading your piece, um, taking neither pill as a political vagabond myself, I'm just, I'm completely at a loss. I mean, I don't want to go backwards socially in the Republican party, but I have zero empathy or, or actually any support for the Democrats. Their wokeism is insane. And they're just, yeah, they're just completely taught you married at the hip to to wall street and defense contractors and i don't know where to put my vote come november or in 2024 and so i'm really at a loss like do i just get involved by local community and just dispense with national politics that seems to be the only solution really you know that 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 that's really interesting that's that's probably the only way to go at this point right i mean um i think for for a lot of us you know, waking up to the fact that we have to get directly involved in things like our school systems and, uh, you know, our local government um, might might be the only way back for people to take start taking more responsibility. And because and, effectively what we did for a generation is just we just abdicated responsibility to these huge uh, political parties that were, you know, selling us out on a grand scale and they're not about anything. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I'm in, the, I feel just as you do. I, 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 I have complete animosity towards, towards both of these organizations oh, gosh. and feel alien, totally alienated from them, you know, which, which I never felt before, you know? So anyway, uh, so on that cheery note, uh, I'm sorry, I got, I've got to, I've got to run into, uh, go pick up my kids, but thank you so much to everybody who turned out, uh, Chris, wow. thanks so much for the, for the question. I really appreciate it. And um, I'll post this soon. Uh, So thanks, thanks, everybody, and take care. Thanks.